This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by the REI Co-op, sponsors of the new film How to Run 100 Miles with Brendan Leonard and Jason Sign. Two regular guys who set out to see if they have what it takes to run a really, really long way. We weren't exactly born to run in the mountains. We met working at an Applebee's in college in Iowa. It's a story of endurance and hope and resilience. And not just on the trail. I guess if you believe in underdogs, Jason's kind of the alpha underdog. In the best sports movies, the big game or race is really a metaphor or symbol of something bigger. And this one's no different. Also, the film is really funny and emotional. And it'll make you want to be an ultra runner. I don't know how you run 100 miles, but Jason has this knack for making you think you can do things you don't think you can do. I think you'll like his story. And apparently I'm willing to run 100 miles to share it with you. The film goes live on February 13th on the REI Co-op Journal at rei.com blog. Then, on February 28th, you can listen to a new episode of the REI podcast featuring Brendan Leonard. That's at rei.com slash blog. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Interview. I'm just going to test your guys' mics with Chris Katz. Unless you're one of the producers of the show... And your name is Robbie Carver. And your body looks like someone crossed a greyhound with an underwear model. There's a pretty good chance you could stand to lose just a couple of pounds. In the United States, about 70% of us are overweight or obese. But it's actually not just us. Since 1975, worldwide obesity rates have tripled. Obesity actually kills more people each year than malnutrition. And it's no secret what's going on. The modern world is the first time in human history that we've lived with complete calorie abundance. It has never been easier to get enough food and do almost no physical labor. And so it's turned evolution on its head. The same adaptations that kept us alive when we had to fight for each meal are now working against us as we try to maintain a weight that doesn't hurt our joints or put stress on our heart. In 2016, researchers published a study looking at former contestants on the TV show The Biggest Loser where obese folks compete to lose weight each week. And what they found was that after the crash diet and exercise on the show, contestants' metabolisms responded by slowing way down. All of a sudden, they burned fewer calories. The more weight they lost, the harder it got to lose weight. And it would be one thing if it were just our bodies. But recent science is showing that our brains are part of the problem as well. We've got a bunch of chemical reward systems that interact with our food choices in such a way that we're not thinking rationally when we decide what to eat. In his book, The Hungry Brain, Dr. Stefan Guianet lays all this out and explains why the part of our brain that wants a cinnamon roll is so much louder than the part of our brain that wants to look good at the beach. You can't put a book on a podcast, however, so Chris called him up. One of the things I found fascinating about your book was the way it just upends this kind of conventional wisdom where we think about our food choices. And, you know, we like to think of ourselves as these rational actors who are making decisions constantly throughout the day. And yeah, we don't want to overeat, but really it's just a matter of making better choices. But as you lay out the case in your book, the deck is stacked against us in terms of the way our brain is set up to react to foods. Yeah, absolutely. So the logic of this is really quite simple, and that is that the brain generates all behaviors. 
So anything, any choice that you're making about what you want to eat, how much you want to eat, uh, how much exercise you're doing, um, your feelings and impulses, your cravings, your hunger, all of those things that strongly influence your eating behavior, all of those things are generated by the brain. It's really a logical frame to view eating behavior and body fatness through. But until recently, we didn't really understand it well enough to, I guess, take that frame productively. Hmm. There's so much science and so much about the brain in your book, but you know the two key areas are you know sort of around decision making and also about this this sort of dopamine feedback loop. And I wanted to start with decision making and start kind of where you did with the the lamprey, which is you know this prehistoric fish that we started evolving from you know five hundred million years ago or more. And yet the decision making parts of their brain are remarkably similar to ours. Can you talk a little bit about that and and sort of why that's important to our understanding of how we make decisions about food? Yeah, absolutely. So the lamprey is, as you said, a fish that diverged from our lineage about 560 million years ago. And it's really the simplest version of the vertebrate brain. And it's the closest thing we have to what our distant ancestors 560 million years ago might have looked like just after they developed the uh, archetypal vertebrate brain plan. I mean, there's a lot of commonality, not surprisingly, you know, evolution prefers not to reinvent the wheel, doesn't fix what's not broken. But one of the things that's not broken is this collection of structures called the basal ganglia. It's kind of close to the center of the brain. And that appears to be a system that is involved in selecting behaviors. So in the lamprey, a lamprey can do a number of different things. It could swim to the left, it could swim to the right, it could eat food, it could try to mate, it could suction onto a rock. I mean, really, if you think about all the various things it could do, all the different ways it could move its body, it could do an almost infinite number of things. And so how does it choose which one to do in any particular situation? Well, that's kind of what the basal ganglia do. At least that's a big part of what they do is they take all of these competing options that are coming in from different parts of the brain and they filter through them and they say, which one is the most compelling for us to do right now? So if there's food in front of you, the most compelling thing is not to swim the other direction, is to swim toward the food. So the basal ganglia kind of helps to sort out all those different options. And that kind of like really basic system for sorting through and choosing behaviors is the basis for our own decision-making system in our brain. So the human basal ganglia is incredibly similar to the lamprey basal ganglia. It's really quite remarkable. When you take a close look, there's the same cell types, there's the same connections, the same neurotransmitters. One way you can think about the brain, this doesn't describe all brain function, but a lot of it, and really it describes a lot of what we're going to talk about today, is you can think about it as a series of different option generators. So there's parts of your brain that are trying to get you to do one thing and another part that's trying to get you to do another. And depending on the situation, depending on what cues are coming in from your inside your body and outside your body, how you feel, whether there's a piece of pizza in front of you or not, or an orange in front of you or not, that determines the strength of the bids that these option generators are putting into the basal ganglia. And the basal ganglia is saying, hey, let's 
let's eat that piece of pizza because that brain region, the pizza, the eating pizza brain region is going wild right now because it sees that there's a piece right in front of you. So it, that's kind of a, an overview of uh, the importance of those structures and, mm-hmm. and how they work. There's a lot of talk about these days about food as drugs and can we be addicted to food? And it's a really controversial topic. But as you point out, you know, the way that addictive drugs work on our brain is very similar to the way some foods will work on our brain. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, first I want to clarify that the the system that drugs work on that causes us to be addicted is the same system that motivates us for everything, even things that are good and healthy and positive in our lives. And so if you... Uh, you know, like it's the same thing that makes you want to eat an apple. So, you know, apple is probably good for us. And uh, you might sometimes feel like you want to eat an apple. You might have a craving and says, hey, I want to eat this apple. That is coming from the same system that makes people smoke crack cocaine. The difference is that crack causes a lot more dopamine to be released than apples. And so you're just driving it way harder. So, you know, it's a continuum and where we decide to draw the cutoff of what is addiction and what is not is actually quite arbitrary. If you smoke crack, crack goes directly into your brain and causes dopamine to go way, way up in your synapses of part of your brain called the striatum. That's really important for motivation. What happens is your brain learns when that dopamine goes up, your brain learns that the next time it sees cues related to smoking crack, such as a crack pipe or the people you hung out with or it smells the smoke or whatever, it's going to kick in this really strong motivation for you to engage in that behavior again. So it's basically strengthening the bid of that option generator in your brain. That's the smoke crack option generator. It's making that really strong So it's going to be really hard to resist when that gets triggered. Dopamine is the thing that strengthens that bid. And so it it works the same way with food. So if you, um, so food releases dopamine, that's the whole point of the dopamine system is to get us to do things that would have been good for us in the setting of our distant ancestors. So dopamine fires when you eat food, it fires when you have sex. Fires probably when you put on a sweater when you're cold, probably fires when you catch a fish successfully, you know, basically anything where you're accomplishing some kind of goal for yourself, dopamine's probably going to be firing and reinforcing whatever you did to accomplish that goal. And so um, it turns out that some foods are better at spiking dopamine than others. And this is not surprising. I mean, think about, think about how often you crave a plain carrot with nothing on it, you know, no dip or anything, just a plain carrot or plain lentils or, you know, some, something equally bland, a plain uh, steamed potato with nothing on it. These are not things that most people crave, but think about how often you crave a cookie or ice cream or candy or pizza or bacon. Those are things we crave. And the reason is that those foods have specific chemical and physical properties that cause higher levels of dopamine to be released by the brain. 
Uh, and those are fat and carbohydrate and protein, as well as uh, glutamate, which is an amino acid that tastes meaty, that's MSG or umami, um, and salt is another one. And those things, up to a point, the more concentrated they are, the more dopamine they cause to be released. People like those things everywhere. That is a fundamental hardwired human trait. Those things are hooked up to your dopamine system via receptors in your digestive tract. So specific receptors detect those chemicals, the signal goes up to your brain and releases dopamine, and that motivates you to seek the food that contain those things. That's how our ancestors survived in the ancient world where calories and nutrients were hard to get. But the problem is that today we are surrounded by concentrated artful combinations of very concentrated versions of these nutrients. So we have foods that today we have the technol, technological ability to purify these things that spike dopamine to their most pure states. So we can purify sugar to a crystalline state. We can purify salt to a crystalline state, purify starch to pure starch. We can uh, purify glutamate to MSG, crystalline state, um, all of these things. And then we can mix them together in very calorie-dense combinations where we've gotten rid of the fiber, we've gotten rid of the water, we've gotten rid of all that stuff the brain doesn't care about. It's just pure dopamine. And that is that creates a situation where, you know, whether we want to call it addiction or not is a matter for debate depends on where we draw that arbitrary line, but no one can argue that these foods are not more motivating, more stimulating of cravings, more stimulating of eating behavior than what our distant ancestors had. Well, let's talk about like a, an example. I guess I'll use me. Um, you know, I have this addiction to, I'll call it an addiction, uh, cold cereal. Like, and it's at night and it's after I've eaten dinner and, you know, maybe I'm reading my book and it's an hour before bedtime and I just start to get this craving for cold cereal. And consciously I'm making this decision of like, yeah, I really don't want to eat that cold cereal right now. Um, I know I'm about to go to sleep. I'm not going to burn any of those calories off. It's just going to sit in my system. I know it's not good for me. I know if I eat a bowl of cereal every night before bed, I'll probably start gaining weight. And yet that urge is so strong. What's going on? So I, so I know like the, on the conscious level, what's going on, what's going on like on the non-conscious level that's making me have that cereal nonetheless. Yeah. So this is a great example of that disconnect between um, essentially different circuits in your brain that have different goals that are competing with one another. So you have your conscious brain that says, this is not really consistent with my rational long-term goals for myself of being lean and healthy. And then you have your uh, non-conscious circuits that are saying, oh man, cereal, it's time for cereal. I really like cereal. Um, so basically what's happened presumably is that um, you have reinforced your cereal eating behavior by eating cereal and uh, you're the when you eat that cereal, that goes down your digestive tract and your brain then gets word that uh, what you just ate is full of fat and sugar and starch. 
and protein and that it's a pretty good source of it. It's pretty concentrated. And so that spikes your dopamine. And then all the cues that are going on, so the texture of the cereal and the taste of it and the smell of it and the appearance of the box and the situation you were in, like the time of day, the place, all of those things are stamped into your brain as motivational cues. So the next time you experience those, for example, if it's that time of night and you're in your kitchen or wherever you are when you get that craving, um, that is a trigger to your brain to start actually spiking dopamine again in anticipation of that. And that's what creates that motivational state for you to go get that thing. And this is, you know, this is a craving. It's, it's not something we control. We experience cravings and we can choose to act or not act on them, but we don't control whether we, whether or not we experience them. There's something that arises from these non-conscious brain regions, and they can be very difficult as you've experienced to control. And, and really the, if, if it's possible for you, the best thing would be to just get rid of the cereal and the milk out of your house because it's, it's the, the reason those cues get you going, get your dopamine going and get your motivation going is that those are reminders to your brain of the availability of this thing that it likes. Hmm. So this, we have this modern obesity epidemic and from what I understand, you know, obesity on this scale certainly just didn't exist in our, in our ancestors. And yet one of the things that anthropologists have noted about hunter-gatherer tribes is that this overeating isn't necessarily a modern phenomenon. In fact, one of my favorite anecdotes was, you know, witnessing a, a group of hunter-gatherers who come upon a, a honeybee nest and, you know, would take down, would drink, literally drink a liter of honey in one sitting. And yet obesity doesn't seem to be a, a problem for them. Why, if overeating has always existed, why does uh, it affect us now more than it did back then? Yeah, this is a great question. And I think the amazing conclusion is that overeating or unamazing conclusion is that overeating was actually good for our ancestors. It was a positive thing. And I think that's part of the reason why we're attracted to it is these, yeah, hunter gatherers can engage in absolutely gluttonous behavior that would be extraordinary to non hunter gatherers. I mean, drinking a liter of honey, like I can't even imagine drinking like a tablespoon of straight honey. A liter is unbelievable or eating five pounds of fatty meat or 30 wild oranges uh, that are similar to the ones in our grocery store. I mean, essentially what seems to happen is that we have these kind of built-in economic principles in our brain. And what I mean by that is basically we try to find the most calories for the least time and effort. So it's just a simple return rate formula. And so basically, when you have situations where you can get a really, really high calorie return rate, such as all of a sudden you have a liter of honey in your hands, they're going to go for it because that's a situation that has a very high value. That's a great deal. And it makes perfect sense. And so in a hunter-gatherer setting, they take advantage of great deals and they gorge. 
And the reason they're not obese is that the reason they're not obese and the reason the gorging is good for them is because it balances out other times in their life when they're not getting as many calories as they want. And that's because it's hard to get calories in a hunter-gatherer setting. If you're hungry, you can't just reach into the fridge and grab something. You have to work to get that. And, and sometimes the things that they want are not available or not as much of it as they would like. And so whenever they have the opportunity to get a ton of delicious food for you know very little time and effort, they're going to take that opportunity as you know a protection against not getting enough. And that and on balance, they're not overeating. They're only overeating in specific um, at specific times. But the problem is that our our brains are wired the same as theirs to look for these great deals. And so today we have the opportunity to gorge every day. And I think we still have those circuits that are that are telling us that are pushing us in that direction because it was so important for the survival and reproduction of our ancestors. Hmm. Another fascinating topic in the book is sort of around the, the, the feeling of feeling sated or feeling full. We like to think that if we're more conscious of that feeling of being full and we really listen to it and we can control our eating, but our brain seems hardwired to override even this. And you give the example like, why when I'm so full after a big meal, let's say Thanksgiving, is my brain say, yeah, a, a, a pecan, piece of pecan pie is going to be a good idea now. Why am I not so full that I, that I still make that decision? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so basically, the reason is that there are different brain circuits that are executing different functions that are trying to drive you to eat. So some of those brain regions care about your energy status, so how much body fat you carry and how much food you've eaten at a meal. And some of those things don't really care about energy status. They care about the they care about how seductive the food is. So if you eat a meal and you're full, the parts of your brain that care about your energy status are like, okay, we're done. We're we don't need to eat anything more and that's why you feel full. That's a signal that those parts of your brain think you've had enough. And at that point, if you were to bring out plain boiled potatoes, they would say, no, we're good. We don't, we don't need to eat this. We have enough energy. But if you bring out the pecan pie or the cookies or the brownies or the ice cream, then you're kicking in a different brain system. And that brain system doesn't really care about the fact that you have enough energy. That brain system cares about the fact that you have a very seductive food in front of you. In other words, a food that the brain implicitly values because of its physical chemical properties. And it's going to motivate you to eat that thing even though you don't need the energy. And I think I think this kind of gets at what I think is one of the major kind of types of things that drives overeating. And that is the activity of these brain systems that don't care about your body's energy status. I think there are a lot more things that we experience in our daily lives today than there was for our distant ancestors that kick in the activity of these circuits that drive us to overeat irrespective of our body's energy status. And so one of the things I talk about a lot in my book and that I really emphasize and I like to emphasize in my interviews is controlling your food environment 
you you don't want to ever be in a situation where you have to exert willpower to not eat to avoid eating foods that you don't want to eat. So you want to set up the situation in advance so that you're not tempting yourself. So the obvious easy part, I mean easy uh simple part is to get rid of the worst offenders out of your house. So ice cream or cookies or stuff that you really know you're not going to be able to handle the temptation. Just get it out of your house. If it's not in your house, not only will you not eat it, but you won't even crave it. When it's not available, your cravings are greatly dampened. Um, Another thing is to control the cues that you're exposing your brain to. So visuals, cues, smell cues, don't leave food on the counter. Don't leave tempting food on the counter because that's a visual cue that gets your dopamine spiking, gets your craving spiking. So in my kitchen, for example, there's very little visible food in my kitchen at all. So I'm not giving my brain those cues that get the dopamine spiking, but I do have a couple of items available if I'm actually genuinely hungry, which are things that are not that seductive and require a little bit of work to eat. So if I want to eat something, I have to shell unsalted peanuts and eat those one at a time, or I have to peel an orange, or I have to unscrew a lid to get at some raw unsalted almonds. So I'm talking about things that if I'm hungry, I'll eat it. If I really actually need a snack, I'll eat it. But if I'm not hungry, I'm not motivated to go through the effort to eat these foods that are not that seductive. And so create little effort barriers for yourself and don't leave really seductive food around your house, particularly things that you can see or smell or reach with your arms outside of mealtime. And if possible, do the same at your workplace. What what about um, from a public policy perspective? Because, you know, we talk about so much about personal choice. Um, You know, lately, there's been a lot of talk about public policy, a lot of resistance around it, both from the industry and citizens. Are there effective public policies um, that we should be enacting? Um, And and are there any that have been enacted that we've seen be effective when it comes to uh, helping us make better choices around food? Yeah. So there is no doubt in my mind that if we really cared enough, we could implement policies that would improve our eating behavior and reduce rates of obesity. The question to me is not really whether we have effective tools available to us. It's are we willing to apply those tools? Are those things acceptable to us politically and ethically? And that's really the big question. But I mean, we could tax unhealthy foods. That is something that economists have studied and it would probably be effective if we were willing to tax it sufficiently. Problem is that the taxes we've implemented so far on things like sugar sweetened beverages are minuscule, tiny compared to what we would need to do to really have an effect and compared to what we do with cigarettes. I mean, the cost of a pack of cigarettes is almost entirely tax. So, um, and we're talking about putting 10% taxes on sugar sweetened beverages. So it's not, we don't do that because we think that's the most effective way. We do it because it's politically fraught to have a larger tax than that. So, 
what is it going to take to get to a place where we are with tobacco, where there is real, um, you know, momentum going in, in terms of, you know, changing public policy and, and making some of these things that are unpopular right now, like the cost of food driving up? I think it's going to take really, really large changes to our food environment and our physical activity environment because the truth is that people are eating a lot more calories today every day than they did back in 1970 or 1960. And that's the average person. Not everyone has gained weight over that period. So the the amount of weight gain is disproportionately concentrated among people who are very heavy. And so to target those people who are the people that really need it, you need to reduce calorie intake every day or increase expenditure by several hundred calories. That's a lot of calories. And this is, this is just thermodynamics. We know this pretty well um, from the research that's been done. That's the amount that we're talking about. So these kind of like half-hearted, half measures that we're taking right now are really not cutting it at all, like little taxes or changes to, you know, phys ed and kids or modest changes to uh, school lunches. I'm not saying that, I'm not trying to say that those things are bad. I'm not criticizing those things. All I'm saying is they're not enough. They're not even close to enough if we want to reverse the obesity epidemic. What about something like fast food joints that list the calories amounts for their servings? Is that misguided or is that, can that be effective? It's pretty much ineffective at doing what we want it to do. I mean, there's probably a subset of people that do pay attention and do care. But I think the people who, you know, public health advocates are trying to reach and to trying to help, I don't, I don't think it influences their behavior. We have studies on this and it has very little, little or no impact on what people choose to eat in those restaurants. I think most people just ignore it. And people who don't ignore it probably don't know how to interpret it. So I think that really the problem is that, in my opinion, and this is what I argue in the book, is that those types of interventions are targeting the wrong brain circuits. So you're trying to provide someone with information. Well, turns out people already know drinking Coke's bad for you. They already know that eating fries and eating cookies is bad for you. They know that and they do it anyway. So if you tell them, if you give them more information along those same lines and you say, you know, you're eating too many calories, you're eating the wrong foods, I mean, you're not telling them anything new. So the, the question is, how do you help um, nudge that person, I'll use the word nudge, in a direction that makes it easier or effortless for them to make better decisions so that, so that they don't have to struggle against themselves to make positive, uh, healthy decisions. And is there any hope that, you know, given the fact that we've only been in the industrial age for a tiny, tiny fraction of human existence, that our brains are actually beginning to adapt to to being in a, an environment where it's actually food abundance instead of food scarcity? Unfortunately not. Um, <laughs> so first of all, I mean, f- to adapt to something, it's got to take you out of the stuff. It's got to either take you out of the gene pool or promote you in the gene pool. And 
uh, eating fast food does not take you out of the gene pool. And there have been some recent genetic studies suggesting that higher body mass index, at least in men, is actually under positive selection, meaning it's being selected for just as a result of whatever interactions people are having in the world. And so, no, we're not naturally adapting. There's no evidence that we are. And if we were, it would take a long time. So I think that that said, I mean, I think that it's possible and even likely if we continue on our current course that we could adapt using technology. You know, medical technology is advancing. uh, Genetic technology is advancing. There are ways that in the not too distant future, we could probably modify our own tendency to overeat and gain weight just by tinkering with our physiology or neurobiology. I think those things are coming down the pipeline. Um, We don't have access to them right now, so it's diet and lifestyle, but uh, eventually it's possible that that will all make this conversation moot. Mm. Well, Stefan, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, my pleasure. That's Dr. Stefan Guionet talking with Chris Kyes. His book is called The Hungry Brain, and it's actually really beautiful, full of illustrations that explain the neuroscience and relationships between different parts of the brain and food. This piece was brought to you by the REI Co-op, presenting How to Run 100 Miles, starting on February 13th at rei.com blog. This piece was produced by Robbie Carver and myself, and in two weeks we're going to be back with a super fascinating story about your body and food, but this time we're looking at what happens after you've digested it. Specifically, after you've digested it when you're out in the woods and nature calls. It's the best poop story you're going to hear for a while, I promise. That's next time.